When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Sally Jenkins about her new book, The Right Call, What Sports Teaches Us About Work and Life, which explores seven fundamental principles behind great decision-making, gleaned from her decades-long career as one of the great sports writers of our time. Sally has been a Washington Post columnist and a feature writer for more than 20 years. She has been a Pulitzer Prize finalist and the winner of the Associated Press Red Smith Award for Outstanding Contributions to Sports Journalism. In 2005, she was the first woman inducted into the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Hall of Fame. Sally Jenkins, welcome to That Said. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we begin, tell us a little about yourself. How did you come to be a sports writer? Well, my father was a Hall of Fame sports writer, Dan Jenkins, who worked for Sports Illustrated magazine the whole time I was growing up. And uh, he traveled so much that we would go with him on vacations. My, I have two brothers, and uh, and he would pack us up uh, in the summertime. And, and so, you know, I was at U.S. Open golf tournaments uh, when I was, you know, five and six years old. Uh, and uh, And also, he would take us out of school once a year. We each got an individual trip with him where you got to go on the road with him, uh, spend a couple of days with him traveling and watching what he did for work. And um, and we each got individual, you know, sort of vacations with him, too. So we understood exactly what he did and why he had to be gone. And, um, you know, I don't know. I guess I came to sports writing like, you know, Austrians come to skiing. You know, it's mm-hmm. just so much in my life. Um, when I decided I wanted to be a writer. That was the logical subject because it was the one I knew so much about. So I did city side reporting for the old LA Herald Examiner. I was a, I was a regular, uh, you know, cops and, and robbers reporter for a little while. And I did some other things, but I always came back to sports. When you started your career as a sports writer, how many women were in the profession? There were a couple. Uh, Leslie Visser was covering the New England Patriots for the Boston Globe and was a great role model. And uh, Diane K. Shaw was a sports columnist, which was really unheard of. Uh, Diane was the sports columnist at the L.A. Herald. Um, and I actually, you know, would see Diane every day. Uh, she was a great friend to me when I was a, a young journalist. Um, there were a couple, you know, I, I, just enough to to where it wasn't, you know, completely a 100% male-dominated profession. Uh, but, you know, um, usually I, Julie Cart of the L.A. Times was a good friend. We both covered national college football, and uh, we were usually the only two women in the press box. And I can remember one time we were going into the, I believe it was the Rose Bowl, and we got stopped by a security guy who said, uh, you know, and who are, who are you with? And Julie said, I'm with Red Book, and she's with uh, Women's Wear Daily. You know, <laughs> we That's started great. teasing the guy. That's great. So and in fact, we were with the Washington Post and the L.A. Times. That's that's, so, a, that's a riot. Yeah. So but we were the only two in the box that day. The 
book, The Right Call, What Sports Teaches Us About Work and Life, is so interesting. And I was curious at the outset, before we delve into the contents of the book, is how did you come to choose this topic? Well, you know, it'd been nagging in the back of my mind for years. I wanted to sort of put something comprehensive together. I knew I was, uh, I was watching some important principles at work. I knew, I knew that I had a special privileged seat at courtside, uh, and behind the scenes in some cases with coaches. And, you know, I, I knew there were some stories I had filed away that I thought were really, really interesting about decision making. And it, it had been in the back of my mind for really many years. It had been growing. And um, and finally, a publisher actually approached me about doing some kind of book about coaches, and I just uh, I jumped at it. Gallery Books, uh, which is a division of Simon and Schuster, came to me and said, "Is there something you'd like to do on this subject?" And I said, "Absolutely." And then I started reporting uh, the book more thoroughly by basically making a master list of people I really wanted to talk to and getting as many of them uh, to cooperate as possible. And then I looked for the intersections. Because the, the the germ of the idea always was, I know I'm hearing things in common, whether I'm talking to a basketball coach in the NBA or Pat Summit in women's basketball or a big wave surfer like Laird Hamilton. I'm hearing some of the same principles. So let's clarify those and find out where those intersections really are. And that's the heart, that's the spine of the book and the construction of the book is what do all of these people have in common? What do they all practice in common? What do they all say in common? And you distill seven attributes. Tell us what they are, and then we'll delve into them in greater detail as we talk over the course of the hour. Right. Well, they're the basics, really, and they're vague terms. They're broad, abstract terms that we throw around very, very loosely. And and uh, the point of the book was to really hash them out granularly. Uh, so the, the principles that they all have in common are uh, conditioning, practice, discipline, candor, culture, intention and failure. They all talk about these things. They, they talk about every single one of these things. Uh, and my job was to sit down and say, well, what is conditioning really? And how is it different from practice? You know, and what is discipline really the way that the elites practice it? Uh, discipline is actually not, you know, a punishment, right? Which is how a lot of bad coaches interpret the term. Discipline is actually a fostered inner construct and the great, great coaches that I've been around, they don't impose discipline. They enable discipline, they draw it out, and they ask players to impose it on themselves. And it's far more effective when it's a player construct than when it's a coach's construct or a leader's construct. The followers really matter a lot more than the heads of organizations. And that's counterintuitive, but it's very, very true. Uh, the followers are the ones who really set the tone, who really set the culture, who really set the practices and the discipline uh, within a room. There's a myth, I think, of the tone at the top. There is an importance to a tone at the top, but really how it's implemented throughout an organization really determines, I think, success and failure much more so than the hortatory words that leaders say, but which often they don't follow themselves. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's really no such thing as the pep talk. You know, that's a, that's a myth. The win one for the Gipper at halftime that changes the whole flow of the game. Uh, I mean, I, I remember asking Barry Switzer, who was the the head coach at Oklahoma, who won a couple of national championships there and then went on and won a Super Bowl with the Dallas Cowboys. And I said, I said, Barry, do you give halftime pep talks? And he said, God, no. He said, there's no time. 
He said, you're, what you're doing in the locker room at halftime is you're making adjustments. You're going over information. You know, what worked? What didn't work? What do we have to do differently in the second half? The book bursts a lot of myths, one of which is, well, these are God-given talents, natural athletes who just appear on the scene and do what they yeah. do because that's how God intended it. You write that players and coaches are products of their own agencies. Their skills are not a matter of natural talent, but of attainment. So talk yeah. about that a bit. Well, I mean, you know, look, some of God's gifts are distributed unequally. I think we'll all acknowledge that. But uh, what I say in the book is that it's really the most fractional uh, factor. It's 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 irrelevant, really. I mean, the, the, the great players that I have watched uh, had deep, deep flaws. Uh, they had as many uh, deficits as they had assets. And what they do differently from the rest of us is they go about working on their weaknesses uh, more than we do. Uh, that's the real difference is a Peyton Manning, uh, everyone forgets, led the league in interceptions two of his first three years in the NFL. Um, and his record at the end of his third season was 32 and 32. He was a very indeterminate character. And as he told me for the book, he said, you know, the question was, who are, who am I going to be? You know, he had to get a grip on the interception problem or he was never going to win Super Bowls and become a Hall of Famer. Um, and he did through very, very hard clinical diagnosis of what he was doing wrong with uh, coaches like Tony Dungy and Jim Caldwell. And in order to do that diagnosis, he had to admit he had a weakness, number one. Uh, he had to look for the weakness and he had to go about curing it in a really, really tough, methodical way. Uh, it wasn't a pleasant process. He had to watch, he watched film on every single interception he threw. And then he would watch film of balls that he threw that should have been intercepted, but they weren't because he just got a little lucky. You know, uh, he was very, very uh, tough on himself in terms of looking for where he was not great, you know, and, and it's, again, it's kind of a counterintuitive thing, but the greats are great because they work on what they're not great at. You asked Rod Laver, the great tennis player who I remember watching as a kid at Forest Hills. My dad was a pharmacist who used to be able to get into the stadium for free and watch the tournaments. And so was Rosewald and Laver and, and Ash and those guys. And you asked Laver, who was, I think, the, one of the greatest of all times, do all champions have something in common? What did he tell you? Yes, he said, he said they do. He said, he said champions have the ability to bring their best when they most need to. And it was a, it was a wonderful comment. And uh, we happened to be sitting watching Pete Sampras practice at the time. Uh, I was doing a, a profile of Sampras and, and labor was around. And, uh, you know, I, that remark really stuck with me uh, because that is, we'd all like to do that, right? You know, no matter what your profession, don't you want to be able to bring your best when you, when you need it the most, no matter what you do for a living, you know, I, I want to be, the best writer on deadline, you know, in, in crisis, when I've got 45 minutes to write a thousand words, uh, you know, I, I want to bring my best writing if I possibly can. And so I started thinking just a little bit more carefully and methodically about how do you achieve that state? You know, how do athletes get there? Uh, Frank Reich, the, uh, the head coach in Carolina right now, but Frank uh, actually accomplished two of the greatest comebacks in football history, one in college uh, at the University of Maryland, where he came from, um, you know, several touchdowns 
behind to lead Maryland to an upset of Miami. Then he did it again as quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. He was quarterback of the greatest comeback in NFL history. And Frank told me something very interesting. He said, he said, the thing about pressure in the moment, he said, most people misunderstand and they think that you do something extraordinary under pressure, uh, that, that athletes who, you know, rise to the moment and, and call up some extraordinary performance. And he said, that's really not true. What you're doing when you perform well under pressure is you're just being who you are while everyone else's performance deteriorates under pressure, right? So the trick is to foster circumstances where your natural, well-practiced, well-drilled performance can come forward in the moment under pressure, you know? So how do you do that? Well, you prepare, you know, you condition, you know, you condition, you practice, uh, you behave in a disciplined way um, going into what is likely to be a high-pressure situation. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about practice, most people practice poorly, right? We don't practice in the circumstances we're going to face. And the greatest example, the funniest example of that is a, a, a golfer, right, who stands on the driving range beating balls into the distance on a perfectly level lie, you know, on nice grass, with a target, you know, that's straight ahead to aim at. And then you get out on the golf course and you can't understand why you're not able to hit the shots on the driving range, why you can't hit them on the golf course. Well, you can't hit them on the golf course because every lie is uneven. You're on a side hill, the grass is uneven, the wind is blowing, uh, the, the flag stick is actually tucked around a corner and you're not quite sure how to cut the shot in there. And, you know, so so life is a lot like that, right? Um, you know, we memorize things. But we don't think about how we're going to feel when we have to re- repeat what we've memorized in a room full of people staring at us uh, critically, right? And when we only have maybe a couple of minutes to spit all that information out in an organized way in front of people under pressure, right? Whole different experience than sitting alone in your house memorizing some stuff on a sheet of paper. You tell two stories which I'd like you to recount here on this business of uh, practice. One is the holding or touching of Steph Curry's hands mm-hmm. and Pete Sampras's training and eating regimen. So oh. I, I loved those stories. I mean, I, the thing that I love most in the book, and I think that people, uh, readers love in the book are the, you know, the actual stories about athletes and how they live and how they behave. Um, that's the stuff I've really gotten to see and talk to them about behind the scenes. That's so much fun. Because, I mean, you can talk about these abstract principles all you want, but really when athletes bring it to life for you, it, it's a lot more fun. Uh, so Steph Curry, I was interviewing him uh, for a, a feature story for the Washington Post. And uh, and I just, I said, can I feel your hands? I mean, he's the softest shooter, right? I mean, he, he just plays with such a delicacy and uh, he's so ephemeral. And uh, he held out his palms and I, I put my palms on top of his and I could not believe how rough his hands were. I mean, they were the hands of like a guy, a carpenter, a hand, someone who hammers or sands wood or, you know, a logger. I mean, they were the hands of like, you know, the most difficult manual labor. And as I hung around the team, you know, I realized he takes 2,000 practice shots a day. He also does hours of dribbling drills. I mean, he's got a rough leather basketball in his hands, you know, four four hours a day, maybe. Uh, you know, dribbling ba- two, two basketballs at one time, doing all kinds of crossover drills, responding to light s- signals that make him react very, very quickly and make decisions with the ball. 
uh, you know, all that stuff really had, had turned his hands into, I mean, he had slabs of, of calluses on his hands, like huge, rough slabs of, of calluses. Uh, I w- it was shocking the way his hands felt, you know, it was a really interesting experience. Um, and it taught me in no uncertain terms that champions are made and not born. Yeah, um, born and then of their the own second, agency. Yeah. Yeah. The second story, uh, is, is Pete Sampras. Pete told me that, uh, he was such a disciplined, uh, he was, he, you know, he basically said, look, what, what you put into the performance uh, is what will come out of it. And so he was very disciplined about what he ate. Uh, he, he pasta and chicken. I mean, pasta every day and some chicken every day. And he was so bored by it and he was so tired of it. And he said, you know, I, it's just, you get to the point where you're just choking it down. Um, I think Michael Phelps once said that, that eating was part of his profession. These people eat professionally, right? They fuel their bodies for the task at hand. And, you know, we could all, again, you know, the thing here is not to become Michael Phelps or Pete Sampras at this point in our, in our lives, you know, that ship has sailed, but we can take things from them. We can take clues from them to be more organized in our own lives and perform better. Um, and, and eating for your performance is a really interesting concept. I mean, you know, as a young writer, I'd slam down a glazed donut and three cups of coffee. And of course, you know, feel horrible by one o'clock when the, the ball goes up, press boxes are full of the most awful food. Um, and you can really make yourself feel horrible on deadline if you don't watch it from eating chips all day, you know, that they have spread around the press box or drinking too much coffee. So, you know, I, I just learned to be a little, try to be a little more cognizant about, you know, what you're putting in your body so that you can think clearly on deadline. You know, it matters, actually. The thing about Sampras, as well as his drinking water and eating chicken and pasta was he also trained, you told us a wonderful story about training in the heat as opposed yeah. to in an air-conditioned facility. Tell yeah. us about that. I, I, well, you know, I went down to see him in Tampa and uh, I trailed him to a workout session and uh, he was in this very Spartan gym in a garage. Uh, the guy he trained with, he'd go over to the guy's house and the guy had a, you know, some Nautilus machines and other sorts of machines in this unair conditioned garage in Tampa in July and I mean, it was sweltering in there. I mean, sweat was just absolutely pouring off of, you know, the three of us in this garage. It wasn't very big. And I mean, I said, Pete, like, why are you doing this? And he said, because they don't air condition the U.S. Open. You know, he was going to be uh, in New York in August uh, on a very, very hot court. And so, you know, he again, you know, he practiced for he worked out for the conditions he was going to be actually facing. It's great. One thing as we get ready to transition to some of the attributes in greater detail. Your dad, Dan Jenkins, the great uh, Hall of Fame sports writer, as you told us, said to you, a lot of people are afraid to win. Hmm. Talk about that, because that also is a thread that follows the attributes of the book. Yeah. I didn't know what he meant by that for for years. I mean, he, he would say it, and I kind of, I don't know why, but I never pressed him on it. Um I, I didn't want to sound dumb, I guess. Uh, but uh, I knew there was something there. I knew he was probably right. I just didn't know exactly what he meant by it. And I was hanging out with Pat Summit, the great Tennessee basketball coach, um, working on a on a book. And I, I said, you know, my father says this thing. He says that most people are afraid to win. And she said, he's right. 
And I said, well, Pat, what does that, what do you mean? What do you guys mean by that? What does that mean? And she said, it means most people are afraid to go all in. They're afraid to do the things that it really takes to, to get to the, you know, the very, very top level of success. Because uh, I said, why do you think they're afraid? Uh, and I was asking as much for myself as anybody else. And she said, because people are afraid of saying that's the best I can do, you know, because uh, you kind of break your own heart when you invest that much in something. You know, there is the possibility that you could lose. There is the possibility that you won't perform uh, at the level, the idealized level you have in your head. You know, I always have an idea of some beautiful thing I'd like to write. I almost never achieve it. Um, but is that a reason not to not to give it my everything? I mean, I think for a while as a younger writer, I was I, I, I affected a nonchalance, you know, because and I think a lot of people do this. If you look like you don't care that much, um, you know, then you're not as embarrassed when you don't get to the level, uh, you know, that great imagined level. So uh, between Pat and my father, I just I really started thinking about that and and watching for it in the great people I was covering and the coaches. I mean, you know, Pat, look, Pat went home a loser. She coached 38 years. She went home a loser 30 of those 38 years. She won eight national championships, which at the time was the record. Uh, I mean, she won, I don't know, 1,058 ball games or something, which at the time was uh, the most male or female of anybody. But but at the end of 30 of those seasons, she went home disappointed. You know, she went home second best. Um, so she couldn't have done it if, uh, if she hadn't had a very clear sense that what was really important was what she was putting in it and how she felt about herself and what she'd put into this enterprise. Did she feel like she had given it everything? And then she could go home and feel okay as a runner-up, you know? Billie Jean King, you quote in the book, which I loved this, uh, she said to you, what matters most was not winning, but having the guts, having the essentially the guts to compete and give it your all and accept that you might not yeah. win, right? She also said something very reassuring while we were having that conversation. She said, people who bet on themselves tend to win. Like, And what that meant was, like, if you can find the guts and the courage to go all in, People who do that tend to be rewarded in the end, you know, maybe not instantly, but in the end, there's a reward for that. You know, um, I, f- I feel like that's very true in, in my own life. You know, um, I feel like my work has gotten better and better. The more I've invested in it, I've gotten better at it and I've gotten I've gotten some rewards from it, you know. But the, the main one is is feeling, you know, uh, master of your craft. And I think we'll go into some of the lessons now because what you say, and I think which is absolutely true, is these disciplines of practice and, and conditioning and decision-making and so on, you say apply not only in equal force to the elite athlete, but those of us who exercise just from the neck up. Yes? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's a deep neurological connection uh, people who think that um, just because they're sitting at a desk not working physically are are wrong. I mean, there's a mountain of neuroscience to prove that they're wrong. Um, your brain actually uh, is is will commandeer your energies from the rest of your body. They your your brain robs your muscles of the energy to function. It will take everything it needs, all the nutrients and all the um, all the chemicals and the and the proteins that it needs from the rest of your body in order to work efficiently. And so that's 
building block number one to understanding how you might perform a little bit better at your desk. And uh, so I wanted to explore that. Uh, you know, Michael Phelps, swimming doesn't look like a very, you know, a, a judgment-based uh, exercise. Like you dive in the water, you swim for all you're worth, and you try to touch the line, right? You follow a black line on the bottom of the pool, and you try to touch this spot on the wall, right? Simple. But Michael Phelps actually had to make a critical decision uh, in the biggest race of his life when he was going for um, a record eight gold medals at the Beijing Games. Uh, he was swimming against Michael Kavich in the 100 butterfly, and he had to make a decision at the very end of the race whether or not to take a half stroke or a full stroke. And uh, and, and Phelps made a split-second decision and judgment uh, to take a half stroke and do what they call chop the wall. And he won the race by one one hundredth of a second. And the reason he was able to make that decision in the moment uh, was because of the deep neurological conditioning and training that he had been through. Um, he had such a sense of timing in the water that he understood his predicament in the moment and what to do about it. You say that athletic conditioning is not something you do purely to build muscles. It's got this neuroscience, increases gray matter in the frontal lobes aspect yeah. to it. And I think the story that brought that home to me most um, potently was that of Magnus Carlsen, the world chess champion. So tell us mm -hmm. about this. Because, you know, you think of conditioning as building muscles for the sake of having muscles, but not for any other reason. But you dispute that and I think prove otherwise with the example of the world chess champion. So tell us about that, please. Yeah, well, so first of all, uh, ESPN did a really great uh, story about this called the the Grandmaster Diet. Uh, so chess masters, grandmaster people sitting over a board playing in, you know, high-level competitive chess tournaments, they burn lots of calories. I mean, that's one of the ways we know that the brain – you know, is that you're working quite strenuously. Uh, they, they can burn, grandmasters burn thousands of calories, uh, during a tournament. They all lose weight over the course of a, of a tournament. And, um, and Magnus Carlsen, uh, went to the, uh, he went to an Olympic training center to get a training regimen that he thought would help him over the board. I mean, he, one thing he discovered was that, uh, and he worked with nutritionists. He discovered he had a habit of sipping a little bit of orange juice during a match. It turned out that the sugar was actually making him crash rather than making him more alert. Um, he, uh, he does a lot of heavy treadmill work, a lot of hot yoga, a lot of tennis, a lot of soccer. He's, a, he's an extremely active, uh, guy with a superb physique. Um, and, um, it's, I think it's, it's one of the reasons why he, he was as regnant, uh, at the chessboard for as long as he was. Same is true of Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer said that your 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 body has to be in peak condition for your mind to operate optimally. You know, one way to think of it is like a like a water wheel. You know, like a uh, or a or a windmill. You know, uh, leg bearing, uh, weight bearing exercise, uh, leg leg exercises has a, a incontrovertible effect on your brain functioning, on your cognition, your executive function, your memory. Your, your clarity, your reasoning, all of these things, your, your, the body is meant to move and it's like a generator for the, for your brain, right? It's like, you're like a hybrid car, you know, think of it that way. And so you have this delayed reward conditioning uh, aspect of it. Is that right? Yeah, there's a, there's a really interesting, um, I mean, I think you, you'll know this, right, Michael? So like, it's the old um, dilemma. Like if I tell you, you can have 
$100 right now, or if you wait a month, I'll give you $150, which do you choose? Do you take the $100 cash right now, or do you hold out for a month? Right. That's the predicament, right? Like, And so, like, there's this real impulse to say, well, I'll take the 100 now, you know, because the longer you have to wait for a reward, the less the reward may seem, right, to a lot of us. And there's some great research into this thing. It's called uh, delayed reward gratification. The people who can hold off uh, for the, the larger reward over the longer term, they tend to have more self-discipline and they tend to achieve their goals at higher rates. Um, and it's it's a bit like a chess player who doesn't make the impulsive um, move, but is actually playing the long game, you know, to get to the checkmate, right? And uh, a guy I talked to for the book named Michael Sophis, who's a, a, a human behavior uh, scientist, he's done some studies that show that uh, when people um, learn, um, you know, some resistance to temptation, they make better financial decisions, um, they lose more weight. Uh, everything in their lives um, gets a little bit more disciplined and a little bit better, and they make slightly better decisions. And uh, this is something that can be trained. And And Sophus likened it to compounding interest, right? Um, the people who are willing to sort of put a little bit of money away and let the interest compound uh, tend to do better in the long run. Uh, and it's a it's a it's an earmark of of people who are going to be successful. And it can be learned. You can practice it. Uh, he did a study where he asked people who um, had not been particularly active to uh, take on um, training programs, physical training programs. And he found a small correlation between the people who were willing to do the training programs and their financial decisions. And we saw that with Bob Iger as well and Disney and some of these other corporations similarly putting in physical work to make their mental acuity better. Yeah. Yeah, Bob Iger, the longtime, yeah. um, you know, chairman of Disney is, uh, God, he, the guy's built like a mountaineer. I mean, he, he does this Versa climber, which have you ever done a Versa climber in a gym? It's, uh, it's this pole with handles on it and pedals on it. And it's literally vertical. It's, it's straight up and down. And you put your hands on these two levers and your feet on these two pedals and you literally sort of bicycle straight up and down. And it, you you can't I can't do it for more than about thirty seconds without absolutely dying. Uh, but Iger does the Versa climber uh, regularly every morning. Um, it's literally like scaling a mountain. This thing uh, it's it's the most brutal machine in a gym, and uh, he does it all the time. Uh, he's superbly fit. A lot of CEOs these days really are. I mean, if you look at Richard Branson, you look at the day of the cigar chomping, paunchy, uh, you know, uh, double chin CEO behind a desk who has a three martini lunch. I mean, those days are over. I think that, I think there's enough known about decision-making uh, that uh, most top CEOs these days and, and heads of companies understand they have to be very fit. The world moves too fast. There's too much jet lag. It's too global. Uh, and if you're, if you're not uh, taking care of yourself, you're, you're in a position to make really irascible, bad decisions for other people. So conditioning gets you, part of the way there, but you say that practice is different from conditioning. They relate to one another, but they are different. So tell us, so now we're, I'm in the gym and I'm conditioning myself. I'm listing my 10 pound barbell and mm -hmm. feeling very proud of myself, but I'm not practicing really. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us uh, about, yeah, tell so us practice, about that. Practice is more diagnostic. So conditioning is like your, your baseline fitness 
But then practice is about, is genuinely practicing for the conditions you're going to face, but also diagnosing your weaknesses and improving them, you know? Um, so like guys in the NBA, they'll spend a lot of time working on their non-dominant left foot, right? Um, and the, you know, making sure their jab step with, uh, you know, going to their left is as effective as going to their right. You know, they really practice is about as much about studying your weakness and, uh, diagnosing what to do about that weakness as anything. It's very, very, it's refinement, right? Practice is about refinement. And so in the case of Peyton Manning, one of the things he did about his interception problem was they studied the film, he and his coaches, and they realized that his footwork wasn't as good. He got a little nervous with his feet when really heavy defensive linemen were diving at his feet. And so they designed this drill where the coaches would hurl heavy sandbags at his feet in the middle of practice to try to make him make his footwork a little more stable. You know, that was a perfect example of you know, finding a weakness on tape, diagnosing what the problem was, and then designing a drill to fix it. So that's what practice is really about. And you gave an example of this and you say that essentially if you practice, if you do deliberate practice, highly analytical practice, then all of the things sort of come natural as a result of that practice. And one of the examples that you gave that struck me was Michael Phelps goggles in the 2008 mm-hmm. Beijing Olympics. So he's a highly conditioned athlete, but he's practiced over and over. And tell us what happens in 2008 in Beijing. Well, Phelps used to practice and also um, visualize and think about, you know, so things don't go perfect, right? You know, once, once you're in competition, competition is very, very protean, right? Things begin to move. And Phelps would think about, well, what, what happens if things don't go right in the race? What if you're trailing? What if your goggles fill up with water? Well, in one race in Beijing, they did fill up with water and Phelps was just so, um, you know, so grooved in his strokes and in his sense of the situation, uh, that he didn't panic. You know, he couldn't see the wall, but he could feel it. Um, he knew where he was and, and he, he knew what his rhythm was. And so he just didn't panic and he was able to, uh, to, you know, to win the race with, uh, with goggles full of water. He didn't need to see anything because no. he just knew from practice and the visualization that yeah. goes with it where he was at that moment. So to your point, practice creates calm. And calm leads to good decision-making. And another story yeah. which you told about that is, uh, which I thought was a wonderful story, was Tony Dungy's wet ball practice drill. The, the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, I love that story. Football yeah. coach. Tell us about where did the Colts play and what was Dungy yeah. doing? So Peyton Manning told me this story. I, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. Uh, so, so, you know, Peyton was talking about practicing for pressure, right? And, and, and Peyton always said, you know, pressure is what you feel when you don't know what the hell to do is, is what, is what Peyton said. And uh, he always wanted to be prepared and Dungy did too. And once a week uh, at practice, Dungy and his coaches would spray the footballs down with water, with garden hoses and, um, and soak the footballs and throw them on the field and make them practice with a wet ball. And uh, the Colts center, Jeff Saturday um, said to, Manning, you know, what the hell are we doing? I mean, we play in a dome, 
You know, we play in the, in the RCA dome. What, like, you know, we're in a dome stadium. Why are we having to practice with wet footballs? And Manning said, well, I don't know, Jeff, maybe the roof could leak. I don't know why they're doing this. Well, they get to the Super Bowl and, uh, they're in Miami and, uh, Manning wakes up the morning of the game and pulls the shades on his window and it's a monsoon outside. I mean, it was, there was this unseasonable surprise, uh, storm that came blowing in. And it, it absolutely poured all day long. And um, you might remember, do you remember Prince playing the halftime show in a pouring rain, singing Purple Rain at halftime? It's yeah, one of the great they epics. get electrocuted. Yeah, it was one of the great epic Super Bowl performances uh, of all time. Uh, but that's the day that uh, Manning and the Colts won the Super Bowl over the Chicago Bears. Manning knew the minute he looked out the window, they had a big advantage in the game because they'd been practicing with wet footballs. And he felt very confident that him and Jeff Saturday were going to be able to uh, make the center quarterback exchange without any trouble. And they were going to be able to run their entire playbook because they were going to feel comfortable with wet footballs. The Chicago bears and Rex Grossman, the quarterback of the bears did not feel the same confidence. Uh, they lost uh, uh, two fumbles uh, that day uh, with the f- wet football. And it was a, it was a big difference in the game. It was a determining factor. Just to fill out this with one more example, talk a little bit about the New England Patriots football practices that you watch, because I think that also makes the point. Then we'll move on to discipline. Yeah. Well, first of all, practice, you know, one thing that I, I haven't said straight out, but ho- hopefully it's been self-evident, is that practice has a purpose. Right. There's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of bad practice in the world because people, it's just, they go out and they beat themselves against a the wall, you know, without understanding what they're really trying to get better at. Um, or, you know, they just think that just work all by itself is enough. And it's not, it has to be a uh, well-directed work, uh, you know, and, um, Bill Belichick was probably for many years, the, the, the greatest practitioner of practice in the, in the NFL because, uh, he was highly diagnostic. He, he, he would boil, his game plan down to two or three things that they wanted to do uh, or weaknesses that they spotted in the opposing team. And then they would go out and just practice those three or four things, but they would practice them so intensely and so completely and so thoroughly. Um, and, and commentators would go observe their practices and they will tell you, it just looked different. Uh, Sean McFay, the head coach of the LA Rams uh, as a young coach had a joint practice with the Patriots and he said he remembered thinking that's what it looks like when it's done right. You know, he was, he was just very, very impressed by the different tempo, the faster tempo, the crispness, the exactitude, all of those things that the Patriots did. And uh, the Patriots were one of the cleanest teams in the NFL, among other things. They, they were very, very seldomly uh, penalized. Uh, they didn't take near as many penalties as the opposition. They played very clean football. And I think I'm not remembering the exact number in the book, but I mean, it was like a thousand yard difference in terms of yardage um, over the years um, in how they were penalized uh, versus their opponents. Um, and they didn't turn the ball over. Uh, you know, Tom Brady uh, threw comparatively few interceptions and, and was almost never sacked uh, compared to his opponents. Uh, they were really small differences turned into huge differences on the scoreboard and, and in Super Bowls. And one of the things that you said that really made me smile was they would practice giving the ball to the referee in sort of the two-minute drill where the clock is ticking and everything matters and the referee has to put the ball down. They would practice handing the ball to the ref 
so that there was not a second wasted. Yes? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can see teams sometimes uh, they drop the ball on the ground and they go racing back to the huddle and the ball is kind of, you know, gyroscoping around on the ground and some, you know, overweight ref is running over, not overweight, but, you know, some, some ref who's older, you know, not real fast comes slowly jogging over to pick up the football and, and place it on the hash mark. And, and yeah, you, you can lose precious seconds by being sloppy that way, you know? And so, I mean, they even drilled that to make sure that they were as efficient as they could be uh, when, when it counted in the closing, you know, minutes of a game. Yogi Berra has a, one of the Yogi Berra isms, which he says, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice in practice. There is. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So let, so we've done conditioning. We now know what the difference between conditioning and practice is. And you tell a story about how this practice business is not just for athletes that in NASA, they do the exact same thing. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, during the, the shuttle program, it, the pilot of the uh, space shuttle had to, I mean, do like a thousand practice landings before they'd ever let you even handle the real shuttle. Um, they, they, they have a, a ratio of eight to one. You have to, uh, you have to practice even the smallest task in outer space uh, during a spacewalk, like, you know, loosening a bolt, uh, in these tanks, these submersible tanks that they send astronauts down to, to, to practice, you know, a spacewalk. Uh, they actually do it underwater, um, in these tanks. You have to uh, master a particular task eight consecutive times without making an error um, until you've maximized the efficiency of, of the job, and then you move on to practicing the next the next task. Uh, you know, the idea being that you know you just it's there's no margin for error out there. You have to be able to uh, to get something done um, without a sense of panic. Uh, you know, in kind of a a, a zero um, a zero sum atmosphere. You said eight times without a mistake on simple tasks, 17 times without a single mistake on more complex tasks. Right, right, yeah. yeah. So practice and conditioning leads to discipline. We talked a little bit about discipline. In the book, you write about discipline in terms of self-discipline and the disciplining of others. So tell us how that fleshes out. Maybe we can start with self discipline. And Derek Jeter was a great example of that. Yeah. So no leader can be effective without demonstrating self-discipline themselves. I mean, people just don't trust uh, inconsistent habits in their leaders, right? Irascibility, uh, you know, uh, most followers just, they, they, they just won't trust your judgment. Um, So the two are very closely related, right? Um, So a coach or a leader, a CEO, like, um, like a Bob Iger at Disney, uh, you know, it's essential to sort of model discipline um otherwise people will generally turn on you and and start sabotaging your operation with distrust uh, so that's number one but uh the coaches you know there's a long passage about mike shashevsky who who always said he didn't have too many rules for duke basketball and leaders understand that rules are not your friend rules actually set up tense situations where you become as shashevsky put it more of a petty bureaucrat than a leader uh, Tony Dungy didn't have many rules. He didn't find guys for being late. If you were someone who was going to be late to Indianapolis Colts meetings, you weren't on the team. Like he just basically 
kind of didn't have anything to do with you. You know, he'd go find someone else who was going to be on time. He wasn't going to sit around wasting a lot of time uh, having lots of arguments and discussions with players about being late or, uh, you know, not having great habits inside the building, you know. Um, and so that's the first thing is that really good leaders, they select people um, who are prone to having good self-discipline in the first place, and they model it themselves. And that just solves most problems. Pat Summit didn't have a lot of rules either. She would tell her players, discipline yourselves so nobody else has to. She didn't want to waste her time um, on a kid who wasn't going to make their grades, wasn't going to be going to class and making their grades because, you know, she wasn't going to have to worry about how to, you know, if that kid got suspended and they couldn't play because of their grades, you know, was ruled ineligible, you know, it was going to put the whole team behind an eight ball and put her behind an eight ball. And she wasn't going to waste her time on that. Um, and so, so I think that that's the first thing to understand about discipline is that, you know, if you try to exert too much of it, you find yourself doing everything but what you're supposed to. And is, as you said, those who can discipline themselves that nobody else has to discipline them that allows the team as a cohesive decision-making entity to succeed it is the sum of its parts. And as Dungey indicates, if you're going to be late for practice, it indicates a lack of respect or interest in the well-being of the team. And therefore, because the whole matters more than the individual, we have no use for you. Yeah. I mean, it's a measure of how important it is to you. You know, I mean, Dungey would say this must not be very important to you, right? If you're, if you're not prompt. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty good, pretty good sign of like who was really committed and, and who wasn't. I mean, you know, Peyton Manning again told me that uh, guys really wanted to perform for Dungey. They, he, he didn't have a, people in the building very often who, um, who were undisciplined. You know, he, again, he, he started uh, with the, the people he selected, you know, so you, you really, you know, Kyle Shanahan is that way. Kyle Shanahan, if you watch the San Francisco 49ers, they play so hard, all of them. I mean, they play to the point of injury, you know, almost weekly. I mean, they play viscerally harder than a lot of teams. And I think it's part of it is because of who Kyle Shanahan and his, and his GM, John Lynch, are, are bringing into the building. You know, Christian McCaffrey was a perfect um running back for them because he runs so hard. He just immediately fit into their entire style of play. Uh, so Kyle Shanahan's not sitting around trying to coach a lot of guys into playing hard. He just isn't. He's bringing people in who already have that in them. Yeah. And so that solves um, a lot of problems before they ever get started. You know, the people who think that they want to uh, be, uh, you know, kind of drill sergeants who want to um, try to impose a lot of discipline on people. Uh, first of all, they, they end up um, probably falling short themselves. There's some instances in the book, you know, uh, Matt Patricia um, is a great coach, a great defensive coach, but when he tried to be head coach of the Detroit lions, uh, he tried to instill all this discipline, but he himself was a rather undisciplined. He himself came to meetings late at times. Uh, he was really foul mouthed, which, can indicate, believe it or not, locker room talk as crude as it can be. Uh, when coaches cuss players out, it kind of indicates a, a, a lack of composure and players don't really trust it and they feel disrespected. And Patricia would, would you know, call guys names and stuff. Um, and it just didn't sit well with them. And, you know, he was a real failure as a head coach in Detroit because of, because of it. And it all started with 
his his modeling uh, his own, you know, uh, lack of discipline in some areas. You write in the end, the consensus among experts and athletes is that discipline is liberating. Yes, because it creates choice. Dean Smith used to say that the great North Carolina basketball coach um, had a great thing he would tell his players, you know, and he would he would say he'd, he'd give an example. I mean, here's a guy who needs to lose about 10 pounds to play in the NBA. He needs to uh, drop his his body fat. Um, and one guy does it. And then one guy is also presented the same dilemma and he doesn't, he thinks he can play, you know, um, at that weight. And, and one guy ends up surviving in the league and the other guy gets cut. And, um, and, and, and Dean Smith would say, so which, which man is more free in that situation? The one who has options, the one who can take or leave the NBA because he has a choice or the one who gets cut and doesn't have a choice at all. Who's more free. So you may see, uh, training as inhibiting, but it ultimately creates freedom because it creates choices. One of the most important aspects of the book, I thought, was your section on candor and the need to take honest responsibility for your own mistakes. And that leads to the two chapters I want to discuss in tandem, which is candor and culture. Because it seems to me that with candor, you can develop the type of culture that winning organizations require, whether it's Bob Iger or NASA or Tony Dungy. So talk about candor and culture and how that creates uh, winning organizations, please. I mean, the winning organizations I've I've watched and and been around are incredibly honest. Uh, There's just a real emotional honesty in those locker rooms or in those buildings. It's uh, confrontational without being bitter. Um, Pat Summit told me once she, that that she said an interesting thing. She said there's a there's a language that teams begin to talk when they're about to win something big, and you can hear it. And and uh, and she always knew she was onto something with a team from the way they were talking to each other. And I said, well, what does that sound like? You know? And she said, it sounds like I've got your back. You know, it sounds like I've got you covered. Like if someone makes a mistake. Uh, the rest of the team, you know, immediately, uh, you know, tries to fill in the gap, you know, and cover for that mistake. And they're like, it's okay. You'll get it next time. We've got you. It's very honest um, and yet very positive, you know, um, not happy talk. It's the talk of accountability, you know, self-honesty and um, and people who point the finger at themselves first instead of somebody else. So I think that um, candor, first of all, candor is the critical factor in improvement, right? You can't, you cannot fix something if you can't be honest about the source of the problem. Um, and that's where a lot of organizations, I mean, not just individuals, but organizations get in trouble um, because when there's a, a culture of blame, when there is a tone of blame coming from the top, a finger pointing or you need to fix this or you need, you know, this is your responsibility and you need to get on this and be accountable for it. That can promote ass covering. There's a distinction uh, between uh, blame and critique and really good leaders know how to practice critique without blame. And one of the ways they do that is with numbers and data and film, which doesn't lie. Right. Um, the film room is always a coach's best friend because it's not personal. 
right? It's not about you as a person. It's just about the performance. And when you can separate those two things, it makes it easier for people to digest. You know, Tony Dungy would say, look, when you do this, we play great. You know, when you do that, we don't look so good. You don't look so good and we don't look so good. You know, the other thing I will say about candor in, in great coaches and athletes is they always provide the fix along with the criticism. Dungy was very clear. Dungy was great about that. And so was Pat. I never heard Pat Summit criticize a player without immediately providing the remedy. This is what you're doing. You need to quit that and you need to start doing this. Right. Very big distinction because it gives people tools to do it right. You quote Tony Dungy as saying how we did things was way more important than what we did. Right. Because, again, competition is protean and you're not in control of all of it. You know, things happen that you don't count on and that you cannot control, you know. And so what your your best friend becomes method. How are we talking to each other when there's a problem? Uh, what are operationally, how do we deal with it when there's a problem? Do we, are we organized at halftime in how we go over things, you know, or are we just finger pointing? Uh, you know, stuff like that becomes, you know, again, method, method tends to overcome the inconsistencies of the moment. You know, not everything's going to go your way. Not everything's going to go right. But when you're married to method and you're confident, that you're practicing the right things um, and talking to each other the right way, it, it just becomes a lot easier to solve problems in the moment. And that's exactly right. I completely agree with that. And the thing that I want to emphasize before we get toward the end here is you said about candor and you tell two stories, one Dak Prescott, one Steve Young, about taking honest responsibility for your own mistakes and the importance of that, not only for you as an individual, so you can grow and learn and progress, but how that impacts your organization. So talk a little bit. You can check about either or both mm. uh, Steve Young and Dak Prescott and how you, that plays out. Yeah. The Steve Young story is really interesting. He, he writes about it in his own autobiography and he tells it in corporate speeches. And he talks about being a young quarterback, having to play behind Joe Montana which made him very sensitive and insecure. He felt like he wasn't um, getting a fair shot. Montana was this god in San Francisco who'd won Super Bowls. And then Montana got injured and Young had to come fill in for him. And he just felt like everyone was comparing him to Joe, you know. And so when he would make a mistake, he was just really hypersensitive about it. And he would dodge accountability. So if he threw an interception, you know, he'd be, well, you know, he'd be all like, well, you know, the line didn't block right. They didn't, you know, they got their assignments wrong. Or, you know, the guy, he made the wrong cut. And um, he was sort of blaming other people. And um, and it didn't sit well with the rest of the team. They didn't trust him. Uh, he didn't necessarily trust himself either. And so he underwent kind of a metamorphosis. And he uh, he had a, a, a kind of an epiphany where um, – he came back the next year and he just really wanted to make sure he took accountability. And so the following year when he would throw an interception, he'd, he'd go, my bad, that's on me. That's my fault. And I made a mistake, but I'll tell you what, guys, let's get some water and we'll turn this thing around. And an interesting thing happened when he started doing that. Other people started responding to him by taking responsibility for their role in things, you know, a receiver would say, well, my cut wasn't so great, you know, and an offensive lineman might say, well, I, you know, I could have held that block a little longer. And so they all started working together because 
because he was setting the tone of accountability, right? And it allowed other people to be more honest about their performances. And so now, now you've got the right tone. Now you've got the language of winning that Pat Summit talks about, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, Young went on, of course, to become a Hall of Famer and win a Super Bowl in his own right and, uh, you know, became everything he should be. And it leads, and we'll save Dak Prescott to the reader, because mm-hmm. I want to talk about two last things before we close. Uh, and there are other aspects of the book that we have not covered, and I invite everyone to go buy this book and study it. My book looks like I was studying for an exam. It's got so many of these little red flags saying, oh, yeah, this is important. Oh, yeah, this is important. But one of the most important things, I think, was overcoming the fear of failure. And I think we saw in Steve Young in his early days where he was blaming people and lacking in candor was uh, also this fear of failure in the aftermath of following Joe Montana. And overcoming this fear of failure is an important characteristic of great athletes and all of us if we can achieve it. So talk about that, Sally. You know, failure is inevitable, right? I mean, you know, who who succeeds at everything they turn their hand to in every instance, right? It's so it's, you know, failure is much, much more common than, than big success. I mean, it just is, um, you know, as I said about Pat Summit's career, you know, 30, 30 years, uh, she went home feeling like a failure at the end, right? Out of 38. So, you know, so you start there. And the great thing about athletes and coaches approach to failure is they have uh, what I call engineers minds, uh, they understand that in order to improve something, you have to stress it to the point of failure, right? So you're stressing your body to the point of failure if you're a Michael Phelps in the swimming pool, right? To try to uh, stretch your capacities, you know, and build your endurance. Um, you know, football teams are stressing themselves to the point of failure by, uh, you know, they're probing. I mean, every play is like a probe, to find out where the failures are in your, in your design. Um, and so you can't strengthen something without stressing it to the point of failure. And football coaches understand, for instance, that they have to be continually evolving because people catch up, right? Uh, they, they master your scheme, you know, and they learn how to counter it, you know, and counterpunch it. And so failure is ultimately a little bit inevitable because people are going to counter you and beat you. And then you have to evolve, right? You have to reinvent. Um, and so there's a very, like I say, there's a very sort of almost engineer's attitude um, towards towards failure. You know, scientists break things all the time uh, in the name of, of understanding and creativity. And athletes do too, and coaches do too. And that's really the fun part um, of, of watching is when you begin to watch a game and, and you look at the how the losers are managing themselves, you can gain real insight into who's going to win next year. You know, I play a game, you know, with myself every year, you know, during the NFL playoffs or during during the NBA playoffs where where, you know, I really watch how the losers manage the situation. Um, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles handled losing the Super Bowl to Kansas City last year really, really well. And I said at the time, I would not it would not surprise me at all to see them come back and win. Uh you know, this year, same thing with Kansas city the year before. I mean, Kansas city has taken some heartbreaking defeats in the playoffs before Andy Reid got them to the super bowl and they, and they won a super bowl. They lost the most painful game I ever saw in the AFC championship to the uh, new England Patriots and Tom Brady. When Brady uh, 
had an interception negated by a penalty and came back and drove down the field for a touchdown to force overtime. And then they won the game in overtime. You know, they came within uh, a guy was offsides by two inches that negated the interception. Uh, they lost, they lost that game by two inches, uh, you know, and um, they came back, but they handled it beautifully. And there was no finger pointing. Andy Reid just basically said, you know, okay, let's everybody get a few inches better in the off season. And they came back and won and won the Super Bowl, you know, the following year. You say the habit of embracing negative results is one of the most essential tricks to gaining success. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, again, you don't win every time out. If you can't embrace setback and if you can't embrace reversal and sort of not getting what you want every time, uh, you know, you're going to have a pretty miserable life apart from everything else. Um, and so, you know, you have to be interested by it. You have to, uh, you know, I look, I reread my stuff, you know, a couple of days after it's published, you know, and it's like eating day old oatmeal. I mean, all you see is like where you failed, what what you didn't do right, what you would like to have done better. But, uh, you know, rereading your own work is the best way to figure out how to be a better writer, you know, because you just see where where it was slow, where it was boring, you know, where it was wrong. Um, yeah, so, you know, that it, it's interesting. It really is. It's once you once you embrace it, it's 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 fun and interesting. And uh, and it is. And I, I again, like Billie Jean King says, you know, people who bet on themselves that way tend to win. It's humbling, but liberating. Yeah. At the same time. So last question for you. Your father used to ask, who can describe the athletic heart? And that's sort of in the right call. Mm. You are describing sort of the athletic heart. So take us out of here, Sally, with the description of the athletic heart and what you think the principal takeaway we should go away with. You know, what he said was, who can explain the athletic heart. And so it was very much a sports writer's question. Uh, he was describing what he did for a living and it was a great description and, and it was a great challenge. You know, I thought about it all the time. Like the first time I ever heard him say that it sounded like the most interesting job in the world uh, because it is a mystery, right? I mean, the athletic heart uh, is a bit mysterious uh, because, you know, just practice and conditioning and candor and discipline, all these things like, you know, you put all those things together and, and ultimately what you have is an improved organism, but a little bit of a robot, right? So the athletic heart is the aspirational heart. It's the animating factor that, that takes something from being a very well-functioning robot to something really, really aspirational that becomes even magical, you know, like a bird, right? Something that flies, you know, and athletes can really seem to fly. You know, they really do. They seem to elevate um, in some way and they seem possessed of some magic that is truly kind of um, I, it's almost hard to describe. Again, who can explain it? Right. But the bottom line is that there's an, a great animating inspiration in the heart of a great athlete that is very elevating, you know, and it can be elevating to watch as well. And that thing is really love of craft and love of profession that animating principle that they all have that takes them from being just functional um you know well functioning you know sets of arms and legs into something greater um than a well functioning robot is love of craft love of what they do you know they love being inside those bodies 
and making those bodies uh, perform at the highest possible level, you know, and that's something that we can all feel about a profession we love or, or a hobby we love, you know. You write that great performers have a motive and a love of the game. It is their love of the endeavor for its own sake, what it calls their effort, how they test their integrity, their mental internal judgments, and their willingness to be actors. Yes. And they do love it. They they love the process. They truly do. And that's the lesson. That's the athletic heart is love of the process. The book is The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind words about the book. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.